fire first forged in ancient text. Drawing neighbor and stranger. Growing thousands from the few needs stark and never plainer. Differences repelled aside. Distinguished commonality between us. One mission kept the flame alive. To guide and align to Jesus. A light to feet. A lamp stand bright to all. Nobody's made it. We have failed and we fall short. But the shining promise, claim it. Anything is possible. Banner flies, lofty vow declared. Beautiful promise realized in every story shared. More cry out for what they do not know. Parched bones, souls of sorrow. Discipleship, our covenant and pledge. Rally all to find and follow. Welcome to Crosspoint and find and follow. Right now, your heart rate should be up. You can just go ahead and thank us for burning a couple extra calories today. Um, with that, we are uh, we're excited to kick off a brand new series. It's something we're passionate about. It's our mission as a church that we exist to help people find and follow Jesus. That is our mission. That is what we get to be a part of together. I am so grateful that, uh, that I get to, uh, get to serve alongside you and that together we get to fulfill and go about that mission. Um, and, you know, in, in this series, we usually take about the beginning of every fall and we just kind of reset our hearts on what we're, what we're called to do together. So if you're brand new, if you're just jumping, it's a great time to jump in as you get to hear what we're about as a church. And I think it's important for us to reset our hearts because of um, there's, this, there's this silent, subtle thing that happens in organizations and in relationships in people's lives. It happens in businesses and institutions, academic institutions. It happens with teams. It happens in marriages and families. It can happen in, in our lives as individuals. It's this, it's this thing that there's an author. Um, his name is uh, Peter Greer, and he calls it mission drift. Mission drift. And here's what he says. He says, when we lose our why, we lose our way. When we lose our why, we lose our way. I was reading recently about when the Titanic sank, that there were lifeboats on board. There were about 20 lifeboats, and a couple of them weren't launched because they, there were captains that believed that the, uh, that the ship was unsinkable. And so some of them that were, that were launched... Um, it said that there were 65 seats on board, 65 seats on board, but on some of those boats, only, uh, only 28, 28 seats were actually taken, which means there were 37 seats that were open. And I, and I read that, and if you, if you know, remember about the Titanic, his, the history of its sinking, um, you know, just one of the most tragic disasters in maritime history that there were um, thousands of people, there were 2,200 2, people on board and only 700, around 700, um, made it and survived. And I was just thinking about that, 37 empty seats on lifeboats. And I wasn't there, so I don't know all of what happened. I'm sure it was chaotic. But I was, I was thinking about these, these lifeboats that were created, that were made to, to save and to rescue lives. At some point, the people who were on board made a decision that this is for us and not for them. At some point, they made a decision that we're the ones, these, are, these exist to preserve our lives rather than risk going back to rescuing others, rowing toward the Titanic to, to rescue others. So I've been thinking about that. I was like, man, that's, that's mission drift. 
And, and, and mission drift for us is a lot more subtle because um, it doesn't involve a 2 a.m. sinking of a massive ship. It's, it's more subtle and it happens over time. It can happen in, uh, in institutions. I actually, I read about a, um, the mission statement of a well-known university. Let me share it with you. To be plainly instructed and consider well that the main end of your life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ. Anybody want to guess what academic institution this is? It's not Belmont. It's not University of Georgia. It's not Trebekah. It's not Lipscomb. This was the mission statement of Harvard University. So this is what Harvard set out to do. In fact, the motto of Harvard um, was truth for Christ and the church. Now, um, I'm not throwing shade at Harvard, although I'm a little bitter I didn't get accepted. Um, not throwing shade, I'm just saying that's no longer the mission that Harvard is on. It's a prestigious and a rigorous school, but that's no longer the mission they're on. This is a picture of mission drift, which is what happens. When we lose our why, we, we lose, we lose our, our way. And it's not just Ivy League schools that this happens. It can happen in our lives personally. It can, it can happen in a career. We can set out in a career because I want to make a difference and I want to help change people's lives. I want to impact things. But over time, begin to drift, lose our why, and become about just maybe, maybe pay, chasing a paycheck or maybe compromise our values or maybe chase fame instead of making a difference. It can happen in a marriage. You stand at an altar and say, I do until death do us part to love and to serve, to have and to hold, but over time lose our way and begins to be transactional and we end up fighting with the one we should be fighting for. We lose our why with kids. We can have children because we want to raise them up, mature and grow, but then we end up, we lose our why and we end up giving our best energy toward a career or our best attention toward a screen. When we lose our why, we lose our way. And I'm in faith. We begin with this relationship to know God and to help other, people's know, other people know the help and the hope that Jesus gives to help other people know Christ. But over time, we maybe lose our, our, our fire and it becomes less about religion or less about a relationship with God and more about like religious activities. When we lose our why, we lose our way. It can happen to all of us. And have you ever walked in a room and then been like, man, I have no idea why I'm here? Ever like walked in the kitchen? You know you're going there to get the scissors that are in the junk drawer. You know why you're going there, and, but, but you forget that's why you're, there, why you're in the kitchen, and you walk in there, and you're like, man, why am I here? And you can't remember, so then you eat a sleeve of Oreos. Anybody? And so like, there's, there's a moment like, I can't remember why I came in this room. It, it can happen in a lot of different rooms. But my prayer is that this series for us as a church, that it would be like an aha moment. Like, oh yeah, that's why I'm here. That's why God has called me here. That's why God has called us here together. We're going to look at something called the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28. But before we get there, I want us to, want us to take a quick stop to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, if you've got a Bible, you can turn there with me. Um, Matthew is the first of the four Gospels, eyewitness accounts of the life of Christ. Um, anybody want to guess who wrote the book of Matthew? Matthew, very good. Very good. Matthew wrote this book, and Matthew was one of Jesus' disciples. And the first time he shows up is in Matthew chapter 9, a section titled The Calling of Matthew. And we'll pick up in verse 9. It says, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named 
Matthew, sitting at the tax collector's booth. So Jesus is walking through Capernaum, and he comes upon a tax collector booth. And if you'll remember, a tax collector, maybe you know, in that day, tax collectors were the ones, they were, they were considered traitors. They had sided up with Rome, with the Roman government, and they had sided up with them to, in order to tax their own people. And so they, were look, they weren't looked fondly on. They were despised. In fact, the religious community lumped tax collectors in with murderers and swindlers. They were traitors, and they were told that they were barred from the synagogue and that they were unable to worship at the temple. So Matthew is a tax collector, and he's sitting at a tax collector booth, and he's thinking that he has been barred from the presence of God, that there's no chance that he has of being made right with God. Matthew would think that he's too far gone. Now, Jesus is a rabbi. Rabbis in that day, they were highly esteemed. In the way that we think of professional athletes, they had like rabbi jerseys and rabbi trading cards. And so rabbis were a really big deal. And to be a disciple of a rabbi or a Talmudim would mean that a rabbi chooses you. In the same way that people would apply to an Ivy League school, people would ask a rabbi if they could follow. And if the rabbi believed that they had what it took, if a rabbi believed that they had the chutzpah, or that they had the intelligence, or they had the wisdom, or they had the, the, the moral character, if a rabbi believed that that potential disciple could be like them, then the rabbi would say, yes, you can follow me. Back to the text. And as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at a tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. Now, what's going on? This is a conspiracy that a rabbi would ask a tax collector, would use his first round draft pick on a tax collector. This has never been done before. That a rabbi would go to a tax collector and would say, follow me. Matthew didn't apply to be a disciple. Jesus chose Matthew in order that we would know no matter where we've been or what we've done. What qualifies us for being a disciple is not our good deeds, it's our good God. And that Jesus laid his life down the cross and he looks at you today and he says, come follow me. This is not a Jedi mind trick, follow me. And so Matthew gets up and follows. Why does Matthew follow Jesus? Because this is the greatest offer that he's ever received. The offer is so good, he leaves behind tax collecting. He leads behind his profession. He leads behind his wealth. He leaves everything behind and says, Jesus, I'll follow you. Where are we going? <laughs> I'll leave it all behind. And Jesus said, we're going to go to a party. Matthew's like, that's great. I love parties. I'm very good at it. And Jesus said, we're going to throw a party. Matthew's like, where's the party? And Jesus said, at your house. I want you to invite all your friends. And so Matthew invites all of his friends, which is like telling a mafia crime boss, have a party, invite all your friends. And Jesus is saying, Matthew, your friends are the kind of people that I like to be around. Jesus, Jesus likes to be around people who are nothing like Jesus. And he invites them to the table. Look with me. Verse 10. And we'll, 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 hold on before we go there. I just faked you out a little bit. I want you to see that, that Jesus invited Matthew, and then he invites Matthew to be an inviter. That's what it means to be a disciple. Matthew gets in on the mission of God before he ever has a Bible, before he ever takes a new believer's class, before he's baptized, before he ever knew what a Chris Tomlin song was. 
He gets an invitation to get in on the mission. So Jesus invites Matthew, and then Jesus invites Matthew to invite. Okay, now we'll look at verse 10. And while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. So this is the OG, everyone's welcome. They're all there. And when the Pharisees saw this, they're the religious leaders. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. The Pharisees are the religious leaders, and they are offended that Jesus is hanging out with these kind of people. Because the religious leaders of the tradition of that day is that morally clean or ritually clean people don't share a meal because mealtimes, it was intimate to share a meal with somebody, that they don't eat with people who are unclean ritually or morally. But not Jesus. So they go to the disciples, and they start throwing shade on Jesus, and Jesus jumps in the chat. I love it when people are trying to have a conversation about Jesus behind his back, a little subtweet conversation, and Jesus just jumps right in. And look at what Jesus says. He says, on hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. He says, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. Now, the irony of this is that the religious leaders are sick, too. They just don't see it. Because they are so busy, let's see if this works. They are so busy using the law as binoculars to see the sin in other people's lives that they're not taking the time to look in the scriptures to see the brokenness in their own lives. They are professionals at spotting. Is, are you seeing what I'm saying? They're becoming professionals at seeing the sin in other people's lives rather than asking God, God, would you reveal the sin in my own heart, in my own life? And so they don't think they're sick. They're just aware of other people's sickness. And then Jesus brings them back to Hosea to a passage that they would know. And he said, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. The Hebrew word for mercy is chesed. Everybody say chesed. Now wipe the back of your neck because the person behind you is speaking Hebrew. That word means acts of loving kindness, grace, generous grace, hospitality. Jesus is saying, go figure out what this means. God desires acts of loving kindness over your sacrifice. See, these Pharisees, the religious crowd, they were really prideful about their sacrifices. And Jesus is saying what God wants is acts of loving kindness. Here's what I want you to see is that holiness, when it's separated from love, it ceases to be holiness. God calls us to be holy, and the only way we can be holy is by His grace. It's only an act of His grace. He calls us to pursue holiness, but holiness, when it becomes separated from love and hospitality, it ceases to be holiness. He wants holiness and hospitality, that we would open up our lives... Henry Nowen describes hospitality as making space for people that we don't have to make space for. It's opening up space at our tables. It's opening up space in our hearts. It's opening up spaces in our groups. It's opening up spaces in our lives. It's opening up space for other people. That's hospitality. And then Jesus gives them a one-sentence mission statement. He says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. 
Aren't you glad that Jesus came to call sinners? I am. Because I'm a sinner. Any other sinners in the house? Okay, we got a few more, a few that aren't, just to let you know. They're among us, and they're going to write books and help us. The reality is we are, all, we are all sinners in need of God's grace, and Jesus came to call sinners to himself. And Matthew got to see Jesus pursue sinners in their brokenness and to call them to more, to call them to, to himself. He loved the un- those who thought they were unlovable. He touched those who thought they were untouchable, the strugglers. Jesus went to them, and he met them in their struggle. Jesus, he loves sinners because it's the only kind of people there are. Loved us unto death, laid his life down on the cross. The religious leaders thought they were taking his life. They were so offended by him, they thought they were taking his life. They didn't take his life. Jesus laid it down. Laid his life down on the cross as the ultimate act of divine hospitality to make space for people that he didn't have to make space for. He made space for you. He made space for me to come to him on the cross. He didn't stay on the cross. They put him in a grave. He didn't stay in the grave. He was raised from the dead. And Matthew sees all of this with his own eyes and gives the rest of his life to share this message. In fact, ends the book of Matthew with what we would call the Great Commission. If you want to turn over there, it's Matthew chapter 28. If you've got an app on your phone, Matthew 28, we'll look at verse 16. And this is what is called the Great Commission. It's what's titled the Great Commission. It's the final commission of Jesus before he ascends to heaven. Before he ascends to heaven, he gives this commission to the disciples. We're going to pick up in verse 16, and then we'll unpack this together. Verse 16 says, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them. And when, he saw, when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Matthew says there are 11 disciples. There once were 12, but Judas betrayed him. So we kind of get this picture of 11 disciples kind of limping up the hill. They've experienced loss. They've experienced hurt. They've experienced pain. They've experienced betrayal. So we've got this ragtag group of disciples that Jesus called, and they're kind of limping up the hill. And then it says that they saw that some worshiped and some doubted. Anybody ever struggle with doubt? Yeah, you're in good company. Because some of the disciples doubted. And what I find interesting here is that Jesus doesn't divide the disciples into two. Okay, I need the doubters over here and the non-doubters over here. He doesn't take the doubters. He doesn't take this great commission. I'm going to give this great commission to the non-doubters. And so the great, the great commission is for the non-doubters. But the doubters, you get the great detention. He didn't give them detention and say, you go figure it out and go get your doubts all worked out. And then you get the great commission. Jesus gives the great commission to the, to the believers and to the doubters. To the worriers and to the hopers. To those who who were troubled in their trusting and to those who seem to be full of faith because the Great Commission, listen, Jesus is so secure in his sovereignty, he gives the commission to all the disciples. He is so secure in his sovereignty because the commission is not based on your level of faith. It's based on the object of your faith, on Jesus. And Jesus said, I'll give my presence and my power to carry this out. And we've whittled down this great commission 
Five verses to six words, we exist to help people find and follow Jesus. That's why we exist as a church. Listen, that's when the church has been at her best in all of history, with the great commission and the great commandment. The great commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. The great commission is to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The great commission and the cross point, we want to be a great commission and a great commandment church. I believe that those two things come together, and there is power when those two things come together. And so Jesus looks at these disciples, and he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take your life, and I want you to, I want you to row toward the Titanic. I want you to look out in the world, and I want you to row toward those. I want you to row toward, here, grab an oar, and row toward those who are lost, and those who are hurting, and those who are confused, and those who are without hope, those who are in despair and in discouragement, those who are in depression. I want you to take, I want you to take the oar, and I want you to row toward those who don't know the help and healing and wholeness and peace that only Jesus can offer. I want you to go toward those who, who are headed toward an eternity apart, apart from Christ. I want you to head toward them, and I want you to row toward them. Because you have the hope in you. You've been given the message. You've been given the truth. You've been given the presence. You've been given the peace. And I'm giving you the power. And it's called a commission. It's called the great commission. Not, not the great suggestion. Not the great thought for you to consider. Jesus said to the disciples, I'm commissioned, and I love the word commission because he's like, you're not going alone. It's not just a mission that he gives to you. It's like, it's a mission that we're going about together, and Jesus said, I am going to be with you. So when we find ourselves drifting, and we grab an oar, we grab an oar. That's what, like, that's what Serve the City is about. We grab an oar. Great commission, great commandment church. We said, we want to grab an oar and row toward the... John Maxwell said it this way. He said, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Serve the city is about us showing our cities and our communities and our neighborhoods and our schools that we care. So that through our care and through our love that their hearts will be open. So the Great Commission, the Great Commandment happens with work gloves and work boots, rolled up sleeves and power tools and paint brushes. And love, the love of God in our hearts, the love of Jesus in our veins, that we would go and show a hurting world that God cares about them and that we see them, that they matter to him. That's why we do serve the city. Great commission, great commandment. People ask sometimes, they're like, hey, you're, you're, you're in Nashville. Um, are there any famous people in your church? People actually ask that sometimes. You know what I tell them? Yeah. Jesus. <laughs> My heart is that Jesus would be the most famous one in this city. And in a city that is wrapped up in many people chasing fame, but that Jesus would be the most famous. That he'd be famous by the way that we speak and what we talk about, and he'd be famous by the way that we live our lives. Because he is the famous one in all of eternity. And that through us, we would get to be a part of bringing up there, down here. And can I tell you something? Nashville has a megaphone. And if Nashville will take a deep breath of the gospel, it will exhale it to the world. 
And so our prayer is, Jesus, would you be famous among us? Would you be famous? Well, how is Jesus made famous? It's through what we see in the Great Commission, that you would go, that you would make disciples, that you would, of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. What I want to do is just kind of whittle this down. We're going to talk more about this in weeks to come. But the first is that word go. When Jesus used the word go, it's, it's actually, it's a, it's a participle, which means it's more accurately translated as you go. So Jesus is like, as you go to the mall, as you go to school, as you go to work, as you go to practice, as you go, as you go eat dinner, as you go to the Waffle House, that's what it means in the Greek, um, Jesus is saying, as you go, make disciples. So in your, in the beautiful thing about this is, is no matter where you are, you have a why. No matter where you are, you have a why. I have a why. It's to make disciples. What does it mean to make disciples? We're going to talk more about this next week. But for today, I want you to think about that word invitation. That making a, disciples be, a disciple begins with an invitation. It says, come and I'm going to practice hospitality. I'm going to open up my life. I'm going to share my life with you so that you can see Jesus through me. Because Jesus wants to show himself off. He wants to make himself famous through you. And it's not about how good you are. It's about how good he is. And the world has yet to see what God can do with a person who has fully surrendered to him. And so it's inviting people into our lives. And it's sharing, it's sharing meals. It's sharing an invitation to coffee. It's sharing an invitation to 18 holes of golf. Some of you just found your ministry. You're like, you mean I can do that for Jesus? Absolutely. <laughs> It's, invite, it's inviting people, it's inviting people to church, it's making invitations to say, hey, come get around me with the prayer, Jesus, will you let your love be shown through me for them? That's where discipleship begins, it begins with invitation. He said, take it to all nations. Now, that word there doesn't mean like geopolitical entities as we think of nations, it means peoples, tribes, groups, families. He's saying, I want you to go across. The Great Commission is what pushes us across all the lines that our world has drawn up. Between political groups, between um, different SEC schools. He's saying, I want you to go across the lines and the barriers. He wants you to take it to all people groups. The Great Commission is what moves us forward. He says, take it to all nations. And then he tells us, he tells us, I want you to go and I want you to make famous. So I was thinking about this. I was like, yeah, we want to hop in. We have a great local, local and global missions. We have opportunities for you to go overseas. But really, this, making Jesus famous begins where we are right now. And can I tell you something that, I, that, I've, that I've seen that kind of troubles me? Thanks, I will. Um, I think over 2020, I think there was this... Um, I think our world's got smaller. I think the, part of the, one of the byproducts of the pandemic was that our world's got smaller, and it seems to me that our homes kind of became a lifeboat for a little while. And so life just got, like, I just got to survive this thing, which is, which is I, like, I get it. I was, I was there, and there was a lot of fear. We didn't, know, we didn't know we would be sitting where we are today. We didn't know. And so there was, there was just a lot of fear. And what happened in that time was there was this, this rising interest in self-care. I give self-care, like we got to practice self-care, and um, which is a good, which is a good thing. But self-care is um, makes sense with a life on mission. Self-care can't be the highest value 
Because what we need when the Titanic is going down, we need more than a bath bomb and a diffuser and, uh, and some essential oils like we do. So um, self-care, self-care, Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. Like we are to love ourselves. The only way we can truly love ourselves is we've received Christ's love. And then we love ourselves so that we can love others, so that we can. We need a mission that is bigger than self. And so self-care, yes, but self-care so that we can grab an oar. And so that we can row toward those who need it. We as the church, we are the ones that when the Titanic is going down, we row toward the Titanic with the love and with the hope that Jesus offers. Let me ask you a question. Who is close to you who considers himself far from God? Who is close to you that needs to know about the healing and the hope that only Jesus can offer? I want to lead you in a prayer for them in just a moment. But I want to tell you a story first. There was a, um, a Scottish pastor named John Harper. And in the early 1900s, he, uh, he was making his way to Moody's Church in Chicago. And as he was on his way, he loaded up with his sister and with his six-year-old daughter. He was a widower. And he loaded up his, um, his sister and his, his daughter onto the ship called the Titanic. And they loaded up to travel the Atlantic. And when the ship hit the iceberg and people were getting in the lifeboats, John Harper put his sister and his, his six-year-old daughter in the lifeboat. He went back to the ship and began to tell people about Jesus. In fact, he urged Christians to get off the lifeboats, to make space for people who did not know Christ. And when the ship went underwater, he went into the water and he began to, he began to swim to people who were floating on the wreckage. And he went and he, he said to one man, he said, do you believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins? Have you trusted Jesus? And the man said, no. And John Harper took off his life preserver, gave it to the man, and said, you need this more than I will. And he swam to another person, and he said, do you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins? Have you received his grace? And that man said, yes. He said, good. He swam back to the man that he gave his life preserver to, and he said, do you believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin? Do you trust, put your trust in him? And that man said, yes. He said, good. Then he swam to another person, and the man with the life preserver said that he saw him succumb to hypothermia, and he saw him drown and go under. And that man said, I am the last convert of John Harper. Now, when the Titanic set out, there were three classes of people. But when white star lines, when they put up on a board after the ship went down, there were only two classes of people. There was known to be lost and known to be saved. And John Harper knew that there were only two classes of people, two groups of people in this world. Those who are known to be lost and those who are known to be saved. And he gave his last breath 
to help people know the hope of Jesus, to help people find him. God has given us all a circle of influence, and we can't save anybody. Only Jesus can. But Jesus has invited us to join him on his mission, that our why would be to grab an oar and to row toward those who need hope. And so I want to lead you in a prayer for people who may be in our circles of influence who don't yet know Christ. But I also want to lead in a prayer if you'd be here today and you've never said yes to Jesus, that today can be the day where you know that hope as well. Would you pray with me? Let's bow our heads and our hearts together. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for your truth. We thank you for what happens in the moment when we put our faith and trust in Christ. It is by grace through faith, not of our works. We can't earn it. We can only receive it. So I pray for those today that need to receive that gift. If you've never said yes to Jesus, you can just pray a prayer like this. Father, thank you for loving me. Thank you for sending Jesus to die on the cross for my sin. Right now, I put my faith and my trust in you. Thank you that Jesus is raised from the dead. Would you put new life in me? I receive a new heart. Make me new. I want to follow you on earth and live with you forever in heaven. Thank you for saving me. If you made that your prayer today, we're going to have some some more prayer team down front at the end of service. We'd love to pray with you. Our prayer is, Holy Spirit, that you would help us think of friends and neighbors and coworkers and family members as we, as we sit in this moment. Would you bring to mind people who you love, who even right now you're making an appeal to them through your spirit, drawing them to yourself. God, would you give us courage and heart to live on mission? That you put your heart in us. And that as we sing these words, well, God, you even, even now begin to work in their heart as we found an unshakable foundation. Lord, we pray that, um, that, God, they would find that foundation too. And that would, we would get to be a part of that, a part of that mission with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me? Let's close in song together.
Take your hand and put it over your heart. Father, we ask that you give us your heart for people. That you give us your eyes that we would see people how you do. And that love would be our motivation to help other people see you. Pray for every person that other people would see Jesus through us. As your followers, would they see you through us? Would they encounter the hope and healing that you offer? Would we be as those who grab an oar and row toward the Titanic, not away from it, to help people find you and follow you too? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Look at the person next to you and say, grab an oar. How's that for a benediction? There's your benediction today. We're doing that. If you're looking for a way to grab an oar, we've got Serve the City signups out in the lobby. We can help you with that. Prayer team down front, we'd love to pray with you. You guys have a great week in the Lord. We'll see you back next week.